0: Hey, everyone. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Sergey and Deem. And we are the mentors. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a question that we get asked all the time. And I think a question that each of us comes to at any point in time we're trying to work on a business, which is how do I find a co founder if I don't have any friends that want to start a business? So, Sergey, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, Let's say to make it a little harder, I want to start a tech business, but I know nothing about technology, but I want to. I have an idea. I think it's going to revolutionize the world, and I want to start a tech business. Um, can't do it myself since I'm a novice. What do I do? Well, I think there's a lot of things you can do, but let's talk about, I suppose, the first thing that I would do. If I didn't have any uh, friends or acquaintances that are technical that could work with me or that I've worked with in the past, right? Um, the first thing that most people tell us is to go network, right? And that and that seems like a little bit of a basic answer. So let's dig a little bit deeper here. First thing I would do uh, is probably dry my crying eyes because I don't have any friends. But once I've calmed down a little bit and decided I need a plan of action, um, I, would, I think I would take the mentality of a recruiter, right? Uh, Someone that needs to attract an individual for a position, knowing full well that that individual has so many options uh, for anything that they could do, especially technical folks, right? Because they are uh, in high demand. So uh, how do I act like a recruiter? First, I would figure out exactly the kind of person I'm looking for. It's not enough to say an engineer Uh, Is it a front-end engineer? Is it a back-end engineer? Is there a certain framework or language that I would like for them to build with? If I don't know the answers to these questions, I should probably think through them before I go out and start my outreach efforts. The thing is you're going a little bit above my head right now because I don't even know what a front-end engineer is and I'm going to correct you, uh, I do cry as an entrepreneur all (laughs) the time. So I think that's a a valid thing. Even though entrepreneurs aren't allowed to cry is what we hear. Boys can't cry. Well, we're here to tell you that you can Uh, in the privacy of your own home. Well, let's assume you've done a little bit of your homework and you know that for whatever app, whether it's a web app, mobile app, piece of software, whatever it is that you need to build, you've done your research and you see what the modern apps, what frameworks and languages they're built with. And so you've narrowed down to at least a few languages that you think you're going to build your product in. Um, and you want somebody perhaps that's a full-stack engineer that can build a, both a back-end and a front-end for you, right? So, so maybe... for those of us that don't know what a full-stack engineer is, uh, basically in software architecture and design, there's really two components that go into building an application, right? Building a program that you use Um for example your mobile app uh, one is the front facing thing that you see on your screen the other one is the back end that actually stores all the files to make sure that you know the little buttons get served at the right time and make you know a nice little display so right so what you're saying it's a, the back end is uh, how the actual product functions the front end is what the person the user the customer sees so a full stack engineer then is someone that is able to handle both sides of the equation Back in the day, uh, people used to really focus on specializing. Oh, I'm an architect. I know how to design the back-end architecture of a website or a program. Uh, I know how to put together databases and how to make sure the files are served very, very quickly. Or, oh, I'm a designer. I can tell you what the user wants to expect uh, when they're experiencing your application. Well, nowadays, it's just easier if you know how to do both. So that's a full stack engineer. In other words, they understand the whole technical stack. So. Considering that you might be someone that's never worked with engineers before, honestly, you, it's going to be trial and error, figuring out the kind of person you need to work with, the kind of communication skills they have, et cetera. But let's start with step one again. We're building out uh, a way to build relationships, right? What's our method for making relationships, relationships when we don't have any at all? What I would do is I would fi- – once I find out who that type of person is, perhaps it's a Ruby on Rails engineer – I would go on every local Ruby on Rails meetup and every uh, local group, let's say on LinkedIn, that shows people that have Ruby on Rails expertise. Perhaps I would even search on LinkedIn, Ruby on Rails as an expertise, and with a, with another word, startup, to see people who have experience actually building startups or work for startups that can build in those languages. And then I would search for those people and try to see who, who might be interesting, who has interesting experience, who's worked for interesting companies. And at least on Meetup, if you're part of the same Meetup group, you can actually reach out to people directly. And on LinkedIn, you might have to do a little bit of work perhaps by a uh, a, a higher tier LinkedIn membership to do outreach. But the point is, it's the same process. You're building a list of people that you're going to reach out to. You're perhaps creating a Google Sheets or an Excel spreadsheet of all of those people. And you're probably, I would start with 50 to 100 if you want to have a significant amount of people that you're going to have a chance that you get some responses of people interested in talking to you about your project start with a significant number always reach out to uh or at least make a bigger list than you think you need okay so you want to start reaching out to people who may be interested in partnering with you you building all these lists how do you actually make yourself sound attractive like what do good engineers look for in a project or in a co-founder what's going to make them respond to you that's a good question um If you're looking to attract anybody, put yourself in their shoes. Why would they respond to you? Well, uh, if uh, somebody's reaching out to me with a brand new business idea that's unproven, guess what's gonna make me more likely to respond? Some proof points. (laughs) Prove something. Do something. Um, The classic mistake that entrepreneurs make is they think that they can hire away their problems or they'll be able to find somebody else that could figure things out for them. Well, guess what? That's the definition of a entrepreneur, somebody that wants to be an entrepreneur but doesn't actually want to do the dirty work themselves. No one wants to help somebody that doesn't want to do the work themselves, right? you want to go out there and prove to a potential technical hire that your idea is worth investing their time into uh, working for equity, working for free sweat equity, if you will, then go ahead and prove to them that you have what it takes to sort of meet your end of the bargain. Uh, put together a prototype, Right. Maybe even there's, there's there's a ton of prototyping tools out there now, like MoCups. What was that mobile one they used recently? Mobi? Uh, proto Proto.io lets proto.io. you build. They have a free membership, they, and they have a very cheap monthly uh, monthly membership as well, which lets you create mobile prototypes, even if you're not a designer or an engineer, in a very easy way. So there's really no excuse to taking an idea for an app or web, web app or software that you have and trying to create something visual around it. You don't have to be a designer. There's plenty of tools out there now. That allow you to create something visual that you can show to people so you can prove whether people will be willing to buy it or use it, etc. Before you ever go talk to an engineer and tell them to build it. By the way, Proto.io, if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please reach out. Uh, But think about it. You develop a prototype. You show it to a potential technical partner. That already looks interesting to them. You went out and did something. What else can you do? Uh, Well, you could take that prototype you can make a list of potential customers that might make uh, find your application or program or software, or whatever, whatever the hell you're building. If you think that your uh, potential customer might find it useful, which by the way, if you want to build a business around it, you better figure out a subset of the population that will actually find your tool useful. Start reaching out to them and say, hey, I have a new solution. Uh, I'd love to, for you to take a look. You know, I'm interested in your feedback. I see that you're an expert in this field. Would you give me five minutes of your time? To review my idea, to review my business. And we'll get into the details of how to test demand, uh, how to get potential customers to say yes or no, I want to use your product, or even understand what product you should build by talking to potential users. We'll get into that in another episode, but I think that's a great point, Vadim. If you're going to be the person that does the business side, prove that you can actually get demand for a product before even something is built. Better yet, prove you can get an initial version of a product built or at least a visual prototype before you hire an engineer or bring, try to bring him on as a co-founder, because you want to show them that you can execute on their vision with or without them. That's get what that's what gets people excited. And so, what would you say then to a technical person, an engineer who has a great idea for an app? Perhaps Before they've even we move been on to that. I just want to mention one other thing that that makes uh, an engineer giddy. It's a three-word statement: product requirement spec. Why? Well, a lot of times business people come to engineers and they want to build something complicated and they say, hey, here's my idea. It's a bit all over the place, but you're smart. You can figure out how to build it, right? Wrong. Everyone thinks in different ways. There's a million different ways to solve any problem. And so what an engineer is going to do is they're going to take their best guess in this scenario and solve it in a way that makes sense to them. Most likely what will happen is they'll come back to you and uh, the solution won't look interesting. So... If you come up with a very detailed specification document of exactly what your application looks like, the different features there as well, then it'll be very easy for somebody to take a look at the doc and translate it into an actual product. More importantly, though, it shows that you put in the thought and it shows that um, you're actually willing to, to think into the details, which so many business people are not willing to do. Exactly. The, your engineering, your future technical co-founder wants to know you have a vision. They want direction, especially in the beginning what to build because you're the one that's getting feedback from the customers, right? So you have to tell them what to build in the beginning and then later on, you can give them creative freedom. But uh, So that's a very good point, Vadim, uh, basically being able to walk the walk before you try to find someone. So then what about an engineer that wants to find a, a business type of co-founder? How might they apply these principles of showing value before going out and finding a partner in a similar way. That's a good question. Why don't you start us off on that train of thought? Well, I guess what I would do, and I'm not an engineer, but I've uh, worked with many technical people who found great business co-founders. And what I would do is I would, again, I would build that prototype myself and I would start the outreach myself to who I think the target customers are. It'll be much easier for me to find a business co-founder if I know exactly the type of customers they should be reaching out to and if I already know uh, the type of objections they might hear from those business customers, right? So essentially, it's the same exact principle. Do the work that you want your business co-founder to do before you go out and try to attract them as a co-founder, which shows that you you understand their job and shows that you're willing to get it done with or without them. Yep. And so, what is the consistent theme that you're hearing across the board here? It's one word that's been overused, but it's the best way to sum it up, traction. What kind of traction can you prove to somebody, anybody, when you're working on an early stage, relatively high-risk concept? Well, by finding potential customers, by getting some kind of product built, by getting even a semblance of a product or a prototype out there, you have now moved from having absolutely nothing to actually having something. And more importantly, you've taken responsibility for doing the hard things that an entrepreneur has to do. Because let's face it, a lot of times entrepreneurship can suck. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to make a bunch of money with my idea. I'm just going to hire a bunch of people and tell them what to do. That's not entrepreneurship. You can go get a job as a manager if you want to tell people what to do. Well, the fact is you're just not – people, People, especially um, nowadays when people have so many options, no one's just going to do what you tell them to. They want somebody that's a visionary but that, that that's able to inspire them by their own leadership and the work that they do. So, so let's say that I've done the work right. I've, I've proved out that there's demand perhaps, maybe built a prototype, and I built a list of people that I want potentially to be my partner's. Still, how do I get them to respond? Like, what do I actually write in my email? Do I tell them right away that they that I'm looking for a partner? What's the tactful way to go about that? So the first thing's first is you want them to open your email, right? Or open your message. Uh, a lot of people miss out on that, and they focus on writing this beautifully crafted email, but then their subject line is something that looks really spammy, like, opportunity of a lifetime. Don't do that. Um, you can... Uh, Peek people's interest in a few different ways. A few subject lines that have worked for us is um, interested in your feedback, right? It proves that you might hold somebody else's opinion in regard, and so you want their direct feedback. Uh, you might say quick question. It implies that whatever you're reaching out with is relatively easy to digest and going to be quick. It's not going to waste their time, and maybe they'll open the email that way. But then, what's the first thing that you say? What is literally the first line or two? Uh, or I guess, what's the most important takeaway? In the email or note that you sent to somebody else is going to increase the chances of, of them actually responding if they do open your message. Well, I suppose I would – first of all, I think brevity is king. Don't write a book. No one really cares how great your idea is. You just get straight to the point. And I guess I would treat it – I would essentially treat it like a conversation and be a little bit more human. I would be very upfront with them. I would say, hey, um, I found you on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Uh, your experience looks really cool. I'm actually working on an app right now that I think has a lot of potential based on XYZ uh, proof points that I've gotten. And I thought you'd be a relevant guy to talk to to get your thoughts on it. Uh, I'm looking down the line. I'm looking for a partner and I'm just exploring having conversations with people. I would love to meet with you for a coffee. I would, so I would be personally, I would be transparent right away what my intention is, transparent about how I found them about why I'm reaching out and what my goal is even down the line. You know, I don't think you have to tell them that, hey, I'm looking for a partner today. Would you like to be my partner? No. But realistically, I'm trying to find people that are interested in this and perhaps collaborate with them. So brevity is king. That's incredibly important. Make sure you have one ask, which is, hey, I want your feedback. Maybe I'm looking for a partner down the line. Another thing that you can do is think about credibility, right? If you want to increase chances of success of somebody responding to you, Mention something credible about you or what you're trying to do. Let's say you're building an app, uh, and let's say that you recently got published in a big piece of publication about your early stage idea. That's pretty important. Most of us are probably not going to have that. But let's say that you talked to 15 different customers, and all 15 signed up uh, for your mailing list to find out when you launch. That makes it sound a little bit more credible. Or let's say that you're a domain expert and you used to be a psychiatry professor at Harvard. I don't even know if they offer psychiatry classes. They must. I never went to Harvard. Fraser did. Fraser did. That's true. But you could um, basically say, "Hey, I taught psychiatry for twenty-five years, and now I'm working on this. I already have this much interest. I thought your uh, experience is really relevant. Let's chat for ten minutes." And notice that you're you're doing this in uh, maybe maybe a total of eight sentences, maybe six sentences. It's brief. It's to the point. You're proving credibility. You're being transparent. Um, And you're essentially just trying to see if they could give you some of their time. Now, Vadim, let's say that I've been able to generate some meetings through this uh, outreach method. Some of these folks are actually interested in what I'm building. We seem to jive pretty well. Uh, And I agreed with some people to work with them, uh, collaborate with them essentially on building some sort of prototype or on building something over the next couple of months. What are my priorities over these next couple of months? How, How do I figure out whether we will jive as co-founders uh, and, and sort of what, are, what what am I testing throughout the next couple of months in our relationship? Probably the most important thing that you're testing is is there trust between you and this potential partner that you're bringing on? And of course, trust is built over time. but as we know, some people are just inherently, I don't know, they just they get you, right? Um, it's easier to work with them, and you must have had this in your workplace as well, by the way, if you ever had a job um, or hell if you if you've ever been in class and you've ever taken a class where you have to do a group project. Some of the members of your team were just easier to work with because you were on the same page or they just understood what you were talking about and vice versa and some people some people you couldn't even grab a hold of uh, when you had a scheduled meeting to make sure that they can come so first of all, you're testing. Can you trust this person? And there's a, a bunch of different things that you can kind of use to evaluate that. How responsive are they? Or are they on the same page with you in terms of how you communicate? Um, do they answer questions in a timely manner that, that goes in hand, hand in hand in uh, hand? Are their answers complete? Do they follow up with questions to you? Right. So do they actually care about what they're working on? Or is this just another thing that they're working on on the side and there's a good chance that they're gonna leave you anyways? um and more importantly do they get shit done yeah of course you should be getting shit done as well by the way if you're just sitting there with your arms folded waiting for somebody to build something and you think you have no work to do you're gravely mistaken so i agree with you on the trust component uh and i would say it actually goes both ways do you trust them to execute on their side of the bargain and do they trust you if they're second guessing every business decision that you're making it's a recipe for a future disaster. They, there should be some sort of implicit trust in that you can only find that out by working with them over a period of several weeks or, or even several months. And uh, we actually have a little story about that. So one of the first entrepreneurial ventures, if you will, that we had involved partnering with uh, an MIT hardware engineer. So that was our first mistake is uh, we were building a software business with a hardware engineer, but he did go to MIT and he was super smart. Uh, and we spent three months, three or four months working together. We almost got into one of the top accelerators in America. Uh, but I remember distinctly one meeting where, you know, we were trying to make some probably relatively meaningless decision, but still, uh, it just goes to show how frustrating it got, uh, where, you know, we had already made a decision, we ran it by him, and he did not like our decision. And he said, Hey, guys, by the way, I think that we should take a, a vote on every major decision for the company, uh, to which you know we said, "What do you mean?" Uh, and he said, "Well, you know, there's three of us, so really all of us should weigh in equally." And while that's a really delicate question, the answer is actually pretty straightforward: um, too many cooks in the kitchen. No. There's very, very, very few su- examples of successful businesses where the decisions were made by a bunch of people. The final decision, I should say, was made by by a, a number of people. Usually, there's one person at the helm of the company. Maybe there's co-CEOs, but typically, typically one person that ultimately makes the decision. Now, of course, there's a group of executives, uh, partners, whoever it is, advisors, mentors that help you make that decision, and hopefully, you know, you trust your leadership. Uh, to to make the right decision, but at the end of the day, if there's too many people, if the, if your decision making sort of process is designed to allow every single person to have the same amount of weight, then you will have decision paralysis and nothing will get done. Which is why typically when your co-founders, uh, investors recommend that someone has more equity than someone else. But you know what? We can also get into the equity split conversation later on. Uh, so we're we're building the relationship with our co-founder. We should trust them to execute. They should trust us to execute. We should be on the same page as well about the business. So any any advice, Vadim, on how to get on the same page or even when to have those difficult conversations with your would-be future co-founder about how you're going to make decisions and even potentially how you will divide equity? Uh, when do you have these conversations and how do you judge whether the conversation is going well or not? So the probably not so popular answer, especially to a lot of early stage founders that finally put together their sort of dream team and they don't want to ruffle any feathers and they don't want to upset anybody, especially if you're new to this and you know you just can't say no, uh, the uncomfortable but correct answer is right away, as early as possible. But in the first week of working with them or is that going to scare them off? You do want to develop at least a little bit of a relationship um, before you have this conversation. In other words, maybe not on day one, but yeah, maybe in the first week, maybe in the first two weeks. It really depends on the person that you're working with. Uh, but you should get on the same page almost immediately around how the decisions are made in the company, uh, even just to see if you have a similar philosophy around that as well. Because if they inherently disagree with that philosophy, Uh, then they're better off joining some kind of communal and not a business. Yeah, and and on the topic of equity, we can talk about appropriate equity splits down the line again. But I would say, when do you have that conversation? Again, once you've worked with them for at least a few weeks, maybe a month, uh, you've developed some of that rapport, it's not too early at that point to say, hey, what type of equity would you be happy with or let's have the equity conversation. This is what I think I'd be willing to give you. Does that work?
1: Yeah, and look,
0: I mean you don't want to lose somebody right away, but at the same time you don't want to invest six months or a year into working on an idea with somebody and only then tell them that, well, you've done a lot more work, you're the CEO, you make all the decisions and you put in the most hours, so you should have eighty percent of the company and they should only have twenty. That's not going to work out well if their expectation is that they sh- it should be a 50-50 split. Now, is that the right answer? We're not going to get into that right now. What the equity split should look like, the I guess the short answer, if we're going to get into it a little bit, is um, uh, you know your your equity split depends directly on the effort and work that you put into the into the business and right and the output ultimately that comes out of it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. We'll save that conversation for another day. But you should have the conversation relatively early before you spend a ton of time. Working together. Yeah, absolutely. Expectations need to be set. Expectations need to be set with co founders, with partners, uh, with future employees, with investors, advisors, literally customers, everybody. Now, do you have any thoughts on um, uh, other ways to test the trust component? Other ways to understand whether that person even trusts you as the business co founder, let's say? Well, the best time. To trust, or to find out if um, if you can trust somebody, is during difficult moments within the startup's uh, the startup's life, uh, and difficult moments will come when you have to deal with lawyers, when you have to deal with uh, customers that are complaining, when you have to deal with you know, whatever whatever might happen, the servers down, right? Is the person taking responsibility themselves, or do they tend to shift blame when things go wrong? Things will go wrong, by the way, even if you start making a ton of money. As a matter of fact, more things will go wrong once you are getting traction and making money. But the number one, I think, thing to look out for is are people owning up to their own mistakes or are there people even taking responsibility for other people's mistakes or are they quick to shift blame? I
1: don't know. What else do you
0: think? I I definitely agree with you here that if somebody wants to shift blame, if they don't take ownership over their work, uh, over decisions they've made, they're probably not cut out to be a founder, uh, to be an, even an early stage employee at a startup. They really need to own everything. Um, so I, I totally agree with you on that end uh, from the trust component. I, I will say to be totally frank here, you know we hear from investors all the time. Uh, I think all of us here have heard uh, that are uh, that even read, let's say startup literature or essays or blogs that investors look for proven teams. Um, That's not uh, obviously 100% a prerequisite. There are people that meet all the time that build products together and learn how to be a good team, Um, and not everybody is born with co-founders, but it probably will take you several iterations, several tries of working with people to figure out what your working style is, what your communication style is, what you're looking for in a co-founder, even even, uh, from the perspective of their personality, how they communicate how they make you feel, like whether you like hanging out with them, uh, what their expertise is. It'll probably take you several tries of working with people over several weeks and several months before you end up finding someone that's sort of your co-founder soulmate, if you will, just like any other kind of uh, relationship development. Here's the other thing you should probably keep in mind uh, and that is at different stages of your business, if you are lucky enough to get it out of stage zero, well, lucky and then put in the right work, but if you get it off the ground, at different stages of your business, you may require different type of talent for the same exact role. For example, uh, let's say that you're, you you build some kind of app or some kind of uh, software. You're finally scaling, uh, but you're at a point now where your customers' data is really, really important to you know stay on top of, make sure you don't lose, make sure that there's no security uh, breaches and things like that. Well, all of a sudden, your CTO, which was really awesome on paper earlier on when you were just building a prototype or the first uh, version of your product, no longer knows what to do, no longer has that expertise. What do you do? Do you fire them? No. Of course not. If if you have high quality talent, you don't get rid of that talent. But hopefully, you're on the same page enough, if you will, where uh, they can put their ego aside and say, you know what? We need to hire somebody else uh that really knows the shit forward and backward. Yeah, you can keep the CTO title if you want, you know, we'll call this new guy VP of engineering. But you gotta get out of the way and let him do what he's good at or her do what she's good at. Same with the CEO role by the way. If you get the company to a point where, you know, you no longer make the right decisions the majority of the time because there's just so much uncharted new territory. Sometimes you have to get out of the way and hire somebody else to be at the helm. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but it does sometimes. So we talked a lot about today about how to find people, how to essentially start building relationships with future co-founders if you have absolutely if you're starting from scratch, you you know nobody. Um, next time I think we'll get into a little bit more into the equity splits how decision-making is created, how you even create founder agreements legally, uh, how you potentially even work with lawyers to set that up and do those types of negotiations. We may even talk about founder breakups because we've experienced that in the past a couple of times. And um, hopefully we can tell you a few ways how to navigate that. They're called breakups for a reason. A startup relationship or co-founder relationship, I should say, is a lot like a marriage. Uh, But I will leave you with this. You know, just because uh, you feel like you really need a partner for your business and this is the right time and you're frustrated because you spent months, maybe even years, looking for the right person, doesn't mean uh, that you should sort of fold your arms and stop doing anything. Uh, As a matter of fact, this is the time to act. The more proof points, again, that you could show, the more things you can accomplish on your own, the more attractive of an asset you and your business become and the easier it is to find somebody but most importantly get out there. You know, even if you live in a relatively small uh, community, drive an hour to a bigger city near you and start meeting people in person. You know, start commenting on different threads online. Start sending cold emails to people. You have to act. You have to get out of your comfort zone. You're never going to meet somebody just like when you're looking for a girl. You're not going to meet her sitting at home, you know, watching Frasier, even though we love doing that. We love Frasier. Uh, take a look at the show notes. We'll show you some examples of emails we've actually used to try to generate meetings from potential co-founders. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.